Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of History Unloaded with Danny and Ashley. Whoa, I did my name first that time. You're just getting real arrogant, Danny. And today we are going to talk about just the classic tale of a mom and pop family gunmaker done in by the corporations. Done in by the, the U.S. government and the banks. That's right. Classic tale. Tale as old as gun making. A tale as old as gun making. And uh, in this episode, we're not talking about how Winchester swallowed up mom and pop shops. We're talking about how Winchester kind of became a mom and pop shop. And yeah, I mean, I guess ran themselves into the ground. I, my way of phrasing it is a bit of a PR spin for Winchester since they were also buying like small businesses. And I mean, this whole series, we've been talking about them, like buying up small businesses that got started up and like keeping them out of competition. So that was a pretty positive spin. Yeah. Well, but like, okay. So this story is like basically how, you know, Winchester exits out of its golden age of sporting arms. I mean, they're like, they're rolling fat, they're making ammo, they're making sporting arms. Like they're basically crushing it. And then World War One hits. And then it is literally like Winchester continuously is kicked until they go bankrupt in 1931. Like it is like the most brutal, just like, I was like prepping for this. And I, I guess I never quite realized just how hard Winchester got screwed over by everybody, which I guess, you know, turnabout's fair play at that point in time but like you know one of my favorite histories of winchester is their role in the military in terms of their like innovative designs but like i guess you know they really never pulled it together to really be that profitable um from military history maybe by the time john olin you know got involved because olin like essentially olin was like an angel of death and like came in and was like we'll save you and make ourselves profitable and they did but This story is going to go after Winchester could afford to buy everybody up, you know, because they loved, they had their niche in the sporting arms market. And uh, let's talk a little bit about Winchester Bennett. Well, and it's really interesting to like, to set the stage a little bit. It's interesting to me how, if you look at the company's history, there's probably, and this extends past when Oliver Winchester was alive, like even after his death for a little while there's not a lot to fault in like the first 50 years of the company history, like from 66 to about 1910, the biggest mistake they make is letting Browning go. Yeah. But that doesn't have immediate consequences. And I don't think it even really is the cause of their downfall. The only other real like thing I wish they had done differently. If I like, man, I really wish they put the centennial revolvers into production because I think they're cool guns. But like, those are the two things as I identify as like, these are big mistakes in the previous 50 years. And then you hit 1914 and it's like questionable decision on top of questionable decision until they're just like, they really pile it on all at once. Oh God. Which is, that's sort of the remarkable thing about this story to me. Well, and so that also brings into play um, to set the stage, which is a character in Winchester history. I don't feel, actually, we're going to talk a lot about characters in Winchester history we never talk about today. Um, but one of them is Winchester Bennett, who they, who was nicknamed Win, which is ironic. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so Winchester Bennett, this is actually really interesting because this is like totally um, a history of like some poor rich kid (laughs) 
wait, bear with me, bear with me. Okay, so we talked about this before, and I think we teased this in the first episode of the series of Winchester swallowing up other companies and ultimately Winchester's demise, which is that like a lot of times when you've got dynasty, you know, manufacturing companies or dynasty companies in general, like dad knew um dad granddad whoever started it knew like they made the company profitable they made this company successful um you know when thomas bennett um, who was oliver winchester's son-in-law got engaged with the entire ordeal um then you know he was also really smart and success and you know made the company successful um and then he had a son and his son's name was winchester bennett um, which like i feel like you were already setting your kid up for failure by calling him winchester like that's a lot of weight on a baby's shoulders wait and isn't that sort of like naming your child after your boss that feels weird well, i mean but like no it's not super weird because like there are families where like because because his thomas <laughs> bennett's wife jenny would have been named jenny winchester yeah <laughs> Jenny Winchester. So like sometimes, you know, like when you, you know, when maiden names become middle names of kids or I guess first names in this case, but like basically Winchester, the company is like flying high in New Haven, Winchester Bennett's born. And like, he just like lives the life of luxury. I mean, he's the kid of, you know, a freaking rich ass company. And so he is, he's raised both like with this like golden, is it golden spoon in your mouth? Is that the I mean, I've heard Silver, Silver Spoon, Spoon to talk about people with like fancy taste, but I think their level of wealth could also be described as gold. Platinum Spoon. spoon. <laughs> yeah, Platinum Spoon. Um, so basically, like he's raised like in this lap of luxury. He has all like he loves the finer things in life, but then he's also being groomed to become to run the company. And from what I was reading in Laura Trevelyan's book, I guess Thomas Bennett was kind of like super hard on him which caused him to be like really nervous <laughs> all the time. And so like basically from the accounts I was reading was that Winchester Bennett wasn't a bad guy um, and he was really smart. Um, like he went to the same schools as his dad, you know, he studied under his dad and he ultimately took the reins of the company. I think he started working for the company in the, like 1890s and he took over maybe in 1905 or maybe it was a little bit, it was probably later than that. But, uh, but basically like, he was really, really good at like a certain part of the company, but he shouldn't have been placed in charge of all of the executive decisions. Yeah. And I mean, now we're getting to like family social dynamics that we're definitely not qualified to analyze, but. Um, <laughs> Danny's not qualified to analyze because he didn't prep for this episode. No, I am familiar with the story. I'm just saying like, you know, analyzing Winchester Bennett as this like character is it's tough because you're reading back a long time. There's this weird family dynamic, like you said, where he has a father that's kind of hard on him and he ends up as this he ends up as head of the company, but he never seems to get over that like nervousness. And and he's really sick all the time. Like, yeah. And he's always like he's I don't know probably accurately described as like sickly yeah like he is full-on sickly like during world war one like he developed every disease and infection you possibly could develop and then like when he recovered from it he got like he had to have an appendectomy i mean like he just like, well and this is also the day and age when like there could be like some really serious issues going on and people would sort of cover it up by like i, I can't think of an expression that would be appropriate to the time period but you know what i mean it's like 
oh, he's just, he's sick today. And he's like, he's, he's going away for a little while. Yeah. And he's like, it's something like really traumatic is going well, on. But at one point um, in his like time with the company or, you know, in his life, I mean, he, like he, he, go, he keeps going to Florida to recover. And then at one point he goes into that, like nobody talks about why he went to a specific facility. Um, and like no one in the family talked about it. You know, it was just like he was recovering. And like when people did research, it was a psychiatric facility. So like t- Winchester Bennett, just like he can't, he can't even like he can't. So <laughs> this is going to be an obscure reverend. Well, maybe not that obscure. I feel like Winchester Bennett, if he was alive now in this day and age, he would definitely be on TikTok and Reels making weird millennial complaint videos that would be what he would be doing he'd be on like about Prozac. like mental health and like stuff. he would be on so many drugs to keep it together like he might have been more successful like i think he might have been more successful because they would have just drugged that guy up like super hard um but yeah so let's move into ultimately like so winchester bennett he like I guess in a nutshell, uh, let's, I mean, let's talk, let's introduce the major players of the downfall. And then like, let's talk about the downfall. So Winchester Bennett, he does take over the company, but he does have to step back, um, you know, back in like the 19 teens, ultimately, I think it, you know, for treatment. Uh, and, um, so then he, he kind of like leaves his dad comes back in, Thomas Bennett comes back in, but he's like super old. Uh, but he does like throw himself back into it and he's traveling, you know, to government, you know, uh, to show government testing and like all this stuff is like, you know, America ramps up into, into world war one. Um, and, and Winchester's involved from the beginning, but you know, when the U S government becomes involved, it becomes a much bigger endeavor. Um, So Thomas Bennett comes back into play um, and he will, you know, basically be trying to step back for a a while. Um, And he just doesn't have like, he doesn't know how to fix it, you know? So ultimately um, there's like this fight internally. Uh, There's a lot of unrest with the staff at, you know, at this point um, in terms of like hours and like happiness levels. And like, there's all kinds of like gossip and news about like the, the people rioting, um, um, and like the, the staff rioting. And so there's just all this unrest. And so then um, ultimately this guy named John Otterson is put um, into the company and then like, a, like him and some guy named Leonard are like playing on both sides of like, you know, Thomas Bennett about who should get control. And ultimately John Otterson gets control. Um, Otterson does do good for the company. Um, like he brings this like idea of like scientific principles into the workforce, which failed miserably. <laughs> in his previous job, but like it actually worked a little bit in Winchester. Um, but then ultimately, you know, by this point, Winchester Bennett had engaged themselves, the company into so much debt by banks, which they had never wanted to do. Uh, like Thomas, like they never wanted to do it. And so now they've got these huge loans to banks. John Otterson um, becomes involved. And so ultimately he brings in his buddy who has a hardware company. And I guess we can talk about that one after we get through World War One. Yeah. Um, the other irony is that, wait, let me see if I can find the quote because it's just epic um thomas bennett was asked at one point if he wanted to get into government contracting and oh i'm not gonna be able to find it oh here it is um and apparently thomas bennett was called the big man which is funny only slightly awkward (laughs) So yeah, so um, 
So Edwin Pugsley, who's also a part of this company um, and will be a part of the company through the transition. Um, so basically he's like, hey, we should get into the government sphere. And it was, uh, so Thomas Bennett said he shook his, or the this is what people allege that he said, you know, that, that happened. He shook his head and said that he did not want US government business as it was a short way to lose money. He refused to bid in spite of the decreasing demand for his product. So basically like he was right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and he would be proven right. And whether there's like a broader truth in that for gun companies, we can discuss later. But um, and Pugsley is interesting because he's one of the main characters that sort of bridges the gap between Winchester and Olin. You know, not a lot of these major figures from the pre-Olin days stuck around in important roles in the post-Olin days. And Pugsley, like, um, he earned his spot. <laughs> like. Right. Yeah. He, he stuck it out. And, and he was married was... to Jenny's no Winchester Bennett's sister, Winchester Bennett's wife, sister. Whoa. We should really like draw out the family. tree. We really thing. should. So like, yeah. So like he was married into the family, but like through multiple like connections, but yeah, Winchester Bennett, um, who's like when he got married to Susan, I, yeah, Susan, um, her sister is who Edwin Pugsley married. So like, yeah. But to, to rewind back a little bit to talk about some of the actual yeah. like missteps. So World War I breaks out 1914. <laughs> Almost immediately, uh, Allied governments turn to U.S. manufacturers, including Winchester, for, um, for large orders. And Winchester had never really hesitated to fill government orders um, overseas. There was always this, they never really got U.S. government orders, but they never... Um, they, they took on foreign orders, which is interesting. But um, one of those orders, of course, is the British government comes to order um, with their new rifle, the Pattern 13, that they had intended to replace the uh, SMLE. But then war breaks out and they don't want to switch over production in the UK. But they think it's a simpler rifle to build. So instead of giving Winchester and others SMLE contracts, they give them what they think will be easier to make. And it turns out all of them are like plagued with problems um, and maybe Winchester the most of all, but they come in, they, they finance essentially, or they write a contract for 400,000 rifles, pay a down payment on that contract. And, and, you know, of course it's, you know, a few million dollars, several million dollars. And almost immediately that begins to turn south because there's production delays. It takes longer to set up the machinery than they think. It takes longer to order the machinery. You see a lot of references to <clears throat> Winchester's leadership in this time period are talking about labor troubles, quote, whatever that means in other companies, you know, cause they're dependent on like on companies like Pratt and Whitney to build machine tools, to make rifles, you know? And the other really interesting thing is, Winchester never quits making commercial guns during this period. So as many rifles as they make for allied governments and the U S they make an, they split their production during the war years, roughly 50, 50 between government orders for the war and U S commercial production. Um, that was always, I would always would have assumed that they would have just like quit making commercial guns and gone all in on these major orders to fill them in time, but they didn't do that. Uh and so May I interject a little bit of weird social sure. history too. Yeah, so, go for it. <laughs> so as Winchester was getting their contract for from England for guns and ammunition, uh, Winchester Bennett has a pretty strong opinion on this. 
<laughs> so um, on September 14, 1914, which is dramatic, wrote that he found it, quote, difficult to maintain in person the neutrality which our nation position demands. And one is inclined to feel from all one sees and hears that the neutrality is of the nation and the federal government only for cer certainly much sympathy for Great Britain is evidence is evident. Yeah, because, you know, it's none of the central powers come to the U.S. for, you know, they're short on weapons, too. They don't really come to U.S. manufacturers. There's no there's not the sympathy there. There's not the um, there's not the means to get it that the allied powers have. And. But the German government does come for Winchester at one point. Um, yeah, they get all these like foreign delegations in and it, it's there's a huge list of foreign delegation that's down in the archives that comes in. Um, but ultimately, only a few of them actually pan out into orders. The the production delays and, and all that with the British contract, what this eventually devolves into is because Winchester's still doing commercial production. And because the British are fronting so much money to expand the factory, the British ultimately accuse Winchester of using their contract to finance their own sort of plans for commercial production and not actually produce the rifles they said they would for. England. And they also are late on a lot of it. And yeah, the, the, part of the it. British contract yeah, sorry, is like a year late before they even start delivering right and winchester's argument behind a lot of that was because of the ammunition on that on the british gun and the modification that had right. to be made in order for that to be successful and there's a big there's a big fight between winchester design engineers and the british inspectors because at one point there's like a hundred british inspectors at the factory and over half of the pattern 14s are getting rejected on a daily basis you know they're submitting like 1500 guns a day uh and they're all you know seven or 800 of them get rejected. Winchester says they're being way too strict. You know, these are fine guns. They shoot the accuracy test. Well, they're, you know, they're saying the stocks are too tight or this isn't right. And, you know, all this stuff. And it comes to a head when the chief inspector and Frank Burton get into like a shouting match. And Frank Burton is arguing that the design for the British, the the British design for the trigger is, isn't right. It's going to, result in light pools or something like that and like the british inspector has a trigger group like in his hand and like slams it on the table in front of burton is like if you just would build it right it would work fine so they i think this is by the time otterson has taken over because the report about this is to otterson yeah um otterson took over um in 1915 and uh because and he was another good i'm just like full of quotes today yeah, you're just straight up quoting. Uh, so uh, Thomas Bennett basically said, poor Wynn was so used up by the anxiety and the burden of uncertainties as to be near a breakdown. He resigned and I took his place temporarily. He went to bed at once and after a month's illness was operated on for abscess of the liver. We had a week of great anxiety. The doctor said, say he should not work for months. So Thomas Bennett comes in um, and Otterson is made the general superintendent of the you know, of the company. And so right. it's, it, you know, what's sad about this is that like when they originally estimated the numbers of like how much it would cost and the net profit, like they were like, this is going to be great, <laughs> but they couldn't right. afford the money up front to, you know, really make this happen. And so, I mean, they were, they were paying for a lot of this. And so they, it ultimately like, it still made profit, but not nearly what they needed in order to stay, 
in business um, in the long run. It's, it's really interesting to read, you know, in the corporate archive about what they're actually making per gun on both the U.S. and British contracts and like how many people are still accusing them of war profiteering, like not to sound like too, I guess I'm whatever. I sound a little pro Winchester here, but they're not making that much money and they're still being accused by like people in the press of like war profiteering through all these years. And it's really interesting because it's, it's leading directly to their financial ruin that they took on these orders. Yeah. And then, Oh, also I made a comment about Germany coming, you know, because like being kind of dicks. And so the, this is the German government basically, or, you know, the Germany, the ambassador to the U S basically told the state department that Britain was violating the rules of international laws because of shotguns. Yeah. That's, that's one that is like, that's a whole nother episode sometime <laughs> yeah. because of the trench gun. Yeah, and the, and the misnomers of the trench guns and all that stuff. But like, basically, it's just a cluster. It's yeah, like it's, a it's a total, total mess. Freaking disaster. <laughs> it's a total mess. And then the U.S. declares war. Yeah, <laughs> like, like this is it's all a mess. before. The yeah, this is all before 1917. And so, yeah, like, so the British contract is kind of a disaster. The Russian contract goes a little bit better, but there's still all these problems with... Um, the Russian inspectors, they have these like constant worries that there's going to be like a labor uprising um, at the time, you know, in these years, whether it's at their plant or one of their suppliers, because they're dependent on all these other industrial firms to supply the raw materials to make the guns or the tools to make the guns. And then the U.S., you know, the British end up, they cancel their 400,000 rifle contract say, how many have you produced so far? It's like 235,000. All right, that's the contract, we're done. Like that's where it ends. Like they never produce 400,000 guns. They actually, Winchester at one point writes a letter to JP Morgan, who's brokering the deal between Winchester and the British government. And they're like, so is there any interest for additional rifle contracts? And you can just like see like how tone deaf that letter is with the benefit of hindsight, because it's like, you guys have been bickering for two years, like at each other's throats, threatening to like halt production. And then you have the audacity to write a letter. Uh, so uh, got any more of those orders for us? We, we'd we really like to make some more money. <laughs> it's so bad. Like it's poor Winchester. I And I'm like, you know, now, like as we talk about this, you know, we've talked about the Burton, you know, you know, machine gun. And then we talk about like Edwin Pugsley's like anti-tank rifle. And you're just like, when like when did you have time to be like right yeah we can't even keep up with our contracts like when did you have time to do this (laughs) so what the burton is not only a incredibly ahead of its time gun it's also just a side project yeah it's like that's his like relaxation project in the evenings or something yoga (laughs) (laughs) right so so moving forward we get to you know the spring of 1917 when the u.s declares war and enters the war And it's quickly realized, like, we're not going to, you know, Winchester's already tooled up. The other companies are already tooled up to produce this pattern of gun. Let's adapt it to 30 out of six instead of switching to the 1903. And then they get this weird deal where the British still own, like the agreement is, it's weird. It's because the British paid some money up front and then like they leased some of the machinery to build the rifles to Winchester. And so instead of the, at the end of the contract, the machinery becoming Winchester's, it transfers to the U.S. government so that like 
technically there is like government owned parts of the factory that Winchester is operating to build rifles as parts of these contracts. And this gets into that question of where Thomas Bennett starts to get proven right in that, you know, if the 1917 enters production, Winchester's building it, their first batch they have problems with, they like, they rush ahead and build some before parts interchangeability has been sorted out. And um, that ticks off the army. They get that sorted out. They produce rifles. They end up making, I think, like a half million 1917s. And of course, they make BARs and other stuff. But then at the end of the war, like it all, like the US government contract is sort of this, it's like a false positive in that, oh, this is going to clear up, you know, we'll be able to use the machinery. We won't eat a loss here. We'll make money off of this contract and we'll settle everything out. But then the war ends like a year before everybody expects it to. And the US government is just like, yeah, all our orders for this much money, uh, they're canceled. Um, so I guess let's move on because we've talked a long time and let's talk about the uh, expansion of Winchester into the hardware market. Yeah. And so this is where the, the, the cancellation of those contracts ends because after they settle out, I think Winchester ends up finally owning the machinery and the part of the factory that was built during the war. But then they lost a ton of money on the, when the government contracts are canceled. So they have all this spare capacity now that they don't need to meet commercial firearms production. And it's all still debt, it's all still financed. So they still have to pay back the loans and money on all this equipment. And it wasn't just one bank that they own loans to. I mean, they took out. Right. Yeah. It's like a huge, it's very complex financial history as well. Yeah. So the solution is diversifying their products. Yeah. So do you want to talk about like what companies they started buying? Yeah. Up? So, so many. So basically what goes on here so is many. like, they're like, okay, we need to make money. And so um, I believe Otterson is the one that brings on Lewis Liggett and Lewis Liggett's like, He's ultimately like the asshole in this story. I mean, Winchester Bennett just like loses, like he just can't and he loses it. And then Thomas Bennett's like, I'm trying. And then Otterson's like, I am like literally trying to hold everything together. And then um, in order to diversify, they really think that this new plan is going to be successful. And so um, basically, oh, and at this point, uh, Charles Sargent, who's a banker and is on the board of Winchester also gets himself involved. Um, and so, so like the banks are like on the board, like this is some scary shit. Um, and so, and they're invested, you know, like they're like, we got to pull this together. So Lewis Liggett is known for, um, Rexel drugs stores. <laughs> And we'll stop just right after drugs, like drug stores. And he develops this method of like um, basically like franchising to some extent, like drugs, these drug stores, like in each city. Um, and so he wants to apply that concept to uh, Winchester's diversification product process. But he also really, really messes up because early on they, um, he makes them kind of like arrangement where it's like, if you guys, you know, buy from Winchester's like different hardware products, you get like a discount on Winchester like to like the public, you get like a discount on like Winchester guns. And so all of the people who are selling guns for Winchester were like, screw you. 
I said that a lot today. Um, you know, all the people who were working for, you know, were selling guns for Winchester were like, this is not fair. So then all of a sudden, Winchester salespeople are now pushing Remington and Savage because they're like not making what they need to make on Winchester's. And that wasn't a decision that should have been discussed a little bit more, perhaps. Um, it's almost like a less successful version. This is a weird connection, but I'm making it because of the Rexall drugstores. But like Walgreens business model for like they became famous for their model of, you know, getting a pharmacy and convenience store on like every street corner. And that's a very oversimplification of what Walgreens actually did. But it's like a it's like a worse version of that is we're going to try and get a Winchester hardware store on every street corner. But we're also going to ruin our relationship with our prior dealers as we do. It was called the Winchester dealer plan. Um, and basically if you were a registered dealer and a salesperson for household goods, you could get a good, you could buy stock, um, like you, um, in the company and get a good price on Winchester guns. So like basically like a big F you to the dealers. <laughs> the- it's sort of like, it's sort of like those subscription plans you hear about for like, I don't know, I'll, I'll make up a generic cable company to say like when the existing comp- customers that have been like with, you know, the company for years and years and years. And then they make this great offer to a new customer. And it's like the existing people are like, uh, hello, what about me over here? And the new guys get all the benefits. (laughs) You're right. Yeah. And then also the big problem with Liggett is that like he basically like the Rexall drug store, like it was the early like concept of like wining and dining your like various franchises and like having these big lavish annual meetings. So he like, he applied that as well to the Winchester people. Like, meanwhile, they have like no money. And then they basically put Edwin Pugsley in charge of the retail stores. <laughs> this is also the time frame when um, they approached Sarah Winchester too. Oh yeah, they're writing so to Sarah this constantly. Is, this is near the end of Sarah Winchester's life. And of course she still has a huge stake in the company and her own huge fortune. And they like, they have to go to her, I think to buy back enough of her shares to get the controlling stake that they need. And as you mentioned, they put as Edwin Pugsley in charge of the retail stores and Edwin Pugsley's like background is engineering. Like that's what he studied. He is a firearms engineer by trade. He's like, I don't want to say it's a bad decision because he's obviously a smart guy, but at the same time, it's like you're using someone who's very good at a very specific thing when you're in need of new firearms products and you're sending him to do something totally unrelated. Yeah. And so in 1922, I guess we, we, we see a merger, which is something that we talked about, which is that Winchester merged with um, associated Simmons hardware companies with St. Louis, Missouri. And that was a big competitor of theirs. And and this is what Edwin Pugsley thinks about John Otterson at this point. Otterson, like a drowning man, (laughs) seized upon every straw to no avail. Edwin Pugsley's basically like really angsty during this time period. Like he has like zero respect for anybody. Um, and so basically like this doesn't go well. And then like everybody is like, Otterson, you need to like get out of this. It's really interesting if you track the, like the simple way of seeing this all in action is to track the name of the company over the years. 
So it starts off as the Winchester Repeating Arms Company. And it's that way for years and years and years. And then at the like end of World War One, they go through, I think there's there's several name changes before they become before it gets bought out by Olin. Um, but like Winchester Simmons is the actual company name for a while. And then it's something else, but it's like, it's all these shifting parts. Um, and you can like, just in the name changes, you can almost see the chaos that is going on within the company. Yeah. And then, um, in 1924, um, this is like the death of the family involvement. Tom Bennett, Thomas Bennett, uh, resigns as chairman of the Winchester Repeating Arms, and he's replaced by drumroll, <laughs> Lewis Liggett. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Lewis uh, is, of course, you know, popular with the banks uh, because at this point it was a Kidder Peabody and Company that was will ultimately be the ones to pull the plug on Winchester. Yeah. So it, of course, then it limps along for a few more years. The Great Depression hits. And, you know, a company that maybe could have gotten by on this business model, despite all the turmoil, you know, that was sort of the last straw. It wasn't really, I don't think you can say it was totally caused by the depression, but there's definitely some building blocks to get there that it is finally kicked in by. And, but you know, who's happy? Well, I mean, as happy as he can be, because he's super sick all the time. Winchester Bennett, he's like, oh yeah, he's like, I'm, I'm, out, I'm, out, I'm done out. with this. But he also is like, I'm going to Florida all the time, so, so I guess he's not that happy. Right. Um. So yeah, then Olin, the company goes into receivership. I think in thirty two. Thirty one, January twenty second, nineteen thirty one. Kidder and P- Peabody and Company pull the plug. And then are they bought in 32 by uh, Olin? End or is of 31, it they're bought by the Western Cartridge okay. Company. Oh, and here you go. Um, they um, bought Winchester $3 million cash and $4.8 million in preferred Western Cartridge stock, uh, plus a few other expenses. Um, all Winchester was worth when they went bankrupt was $8.1 million. Which is a total fragment of... Um, yeah, at one point, Sarah Winchester, when she got like her share of the company, she got like 20 million in cash, like, or something crazy. I mean, she had like, she was worth three or four times what the company was worth when it went out of business, which is crazy. I'm now, it's very easy to track down what she made when she, um, Sarah Winchester inheritance Winchester. (laughs) I'm Googling it because I know that you can find it because it was a lot. Yeah, it's a lot of money. And to, to think that a company million by... dollars and 50% ownership. Yeah. So to think that she had been worth that much when she, you know, got her inheritance and then was suddenly um, like, like, or not suddenly, I guess that's the wrong word, but the company at its low ebb was only worth, you know, three or $4 million plus some stock is... That's a pretty dramatic turn of fortune for this big of a brand. And she also got a thousand dollars a day. <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, that's a lot of money right now. Like, and it was at the. It's death not of a ton husband. of money right now, but that's a ton of money back then. And it was at the. You know, it was when her husband died, which was eighteen eighty. So we're talking twenty million dollars. <laughs> In 1880 versus eight million dollars in 1930. In 1930. Yeah, right. Like that's so sad. Um, that is. Do you think that like the ghosts 
I just, the ghosts of the owners of the other companies were like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> I, do they have a yeah, what are, in Sarah Winchester's like In house? this theoretical meeting of ghosts of firearm CEOs at the Sarah Winchester house, you know, uh, Eliphat Remington and Oliver Winchester. Oh, is it Eliphat? And, I always thought it was a life of it. I could be, um, I have no confidence in my pronunciation. <laughs> all these, you know, Horace and Daniel, they're all sitting around and it's just like teasing Oliver Winchester of what his company has become. I mean, they all have it coming on their own later on. Like, let's not pretend that the rest of these companies are, you know, have a great corporate history, but it's certainly a, a long way, a long fall from what they had been at their peak. Yeah. And at, at this point, I mean, the best thing that happened to Winchester at that point was to be bought out by Olin's, by, by the Olin's. Yeah, they and, were good and the Olin's. People. And the company today that is Winchester, which is Winchester Ammunition, is still owned and run by Olin. So it's not like they ever really, I mean, they were they dispelled right. themselves of like the gun business, um, but they are still involved today. So clearly what they set up uh, was smart. And Winchester is and, like crushing, yeah. Winchester ammunitions, like crushing it right now. And like, they've got that government facility now and like they're, yeah, they're running Lake city. Yeah. So, so it's honestly, maybe the takeaway is yeah. Western cartridge owned by the Olins does turn it around for Winchester. And then they become a major player again for uh, the U S government in world war one or world war two. Um, and yeah, now it's still Olin today. So if you look at other firearms histories, like firearms company histories, a one buyout company is pretty rare. Like original owner companies are super rare. One buyout companies are pretty rare because yeah. like the number of times that most of these companies have changed hands is pretty high. So that is the story of Winchester's decline. It's a long one. Yeah, it's, it's a long like one. There's a lot of moving it, it parts. Like it's like stretches out, you know, and there's like so many missteps and so many different areas and so many players that like, it's almost like too many, you know, chiefs. Is that, am yeah. I allowed to say and that I mean, nowadays? it really is a reversal. It's like a total reversal of like a, the Spencer company, you know, during the, you know, 1864, everything looks great. They're selling a ton of government contracts. Things are going well by 66, you know, Winchester's picking up what's left of you know the fragments and for Winchester in the late 1800s like 1890s who could have predicted that within you know really a generation at the company that it would be it had to be saved from being defunct like that's how close it came so who do you think and this is a good place to end on who do you think um, in your opinion, not necessarily Winchester historian's opinion, who do you think tanked it the worst? Mm. Um, that's a good question. And it's really tough to answer because like, there's so many parts, like you could make an argument for somebody like even Thomas Bennett, because if he had been willing to pay royalties, then none of his competitors at the end of world war one would have had anything meaningful to compete with. You know, he would have had the a five, they would have had the model eight. They would have had the 1911. Like 
who is going to have products to compete with him at that point. That is true. That's a full on plot twist because you are, you're not wrong. I mean, everyone talks about Thomas Bennett as the hero of the company, certainly not when he comes back, but um, you know, and, and it, it was it that misstep that ultimately led to the downfall of the company. And I think once you get in the company, you know, the company downfall, it's probably an even split between Winchester Bennett and John Otterson. Or you can make the case for somebody, you know, at the beginning of World War One, if they just said, "Nope, we're doing commercial, we're doing commercial like Thomas firearm sales," but and, but but there was so much money at one of the line, like it's huge amounts of money. I mean, and that's just talking about we just talked about you know firearm sales. We're not talking about ammunition sale, which was literally billions of rounds of ammunition um, that they were selling. And so. consider like you know, okay, so fine, they don't get into the government contracts and they stay with the commercial market. Like, who's buying? sporting arms during the war effort right. like, and, and, and especially when so many you know, men are going overseas to fight in the war like would it have even been you know a profitable company could it have survived the war and if you stay out of if you stay out of the war if you if you take that approach and you stay out all your competitors are going to take up those contracts they're all going to end the war potentially with much larger manufacturing facilities like if they've been productive, if you just sort of sit on your heels for those four years and say, you know what, it's a big financial risk, we're not going to do it, and your competitors do and they pull it off, then they've just almost for free expanded their plants and they can just outproduce you when the war's over. So it's you can say it was that, but they almost don't have an option. You know, probably the bigger mistake is like to me, those lead into it, but branching out into the hardware business the way they did. And maybe they could have done it better because they do have to pay for their factory then. And they, they have to come up with something. But they also so it's, it's a really tough established choice. Business, like business right. organization. So I don't know. It's just a disaster. And I think that is all we have to say about that. I, I guess. We're not yeah, it's like, more to say. I, I do. I've, it's several points where people face really tough decisions and you can see like both sides of it, but taken as each decision like in a chain it seems like they made a can it's not like one person made the right one then one person made the wrong one and back and forth it's like everybody was faced with a 50 50 and they all made ended up making the wrong side of the 50 exactly so. all right well that concludes our look at the pac-man of the gun industry and how sometimes you get too full and you have to vomit <laughs> weird ending but i'll take it <laughs> all right guys we'll talk to you later See ya.